Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, the Reverend George Mills Dickerson of Tazewell, Virginia, was born in the years after slavery ended. He's remembered today through his poetry. I think he was, he was really way ahead of his time. He was not letting somebody else name us. He is naming himself. And a new wave of black lung disease is ravaging Appalachia. We'll hear more from a black lung town hall in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Once this dust enters into the lungs and is retained within the lungs, it's there for life. Coal miners have their own thoughts about black lung too. The day you pick that dinner bucket up and go in the mines, that's the day you sign your death warrant. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Families keep traditions. Whether that's a particular recipe that gets made every Thanksgiving, or a family church used for weddings. In Jeanette Wilson's family, poetry has been an enduring tradition. They've recited the poems of Wilson's grandfather and her uncle George for nearly a hundred years. Now, these poems about African American life in Southwest Virginia are reaching a wider audience and connecting the past to the present. Connie Kitts brings us this story from Tazewell, Virginia. Jeanette Wilson thinks she was about five years old when she heard one of her grandfather's poems for the first time. Her Aunt Edna used to recite them to the children. She would, like, say, I mean, we'd be just up and, like, cuddled in her bed, like story time or whatever. Some of her grandfather's poems were matched with tunes to make them easier to memorize, like the Virginia Hills. And then it went, Virginia Hills, Virginia Fields, and the days of long ago. Oh, I wonder, I remember the folks I used to know. Her grandfather was Reverend George Mills Dickerson. She called him Papa. He was born in 1871. He became an ordained minister, preached for more than 50 years, and married more than 1,000 couples at the Tazewell County Courthouse. He also taught in the segregated black schools, and he wrote poems, hundreds of them. He wrote about black children making the long trek to a school in Tip Top, about soldiers coming home from World War I with shell shock. There were family poems, Tazewell poems, and love poems, with themes of his Christian faith woven throughout. Jeanette's grandfather collected 106 of his poems and had them bound and published in 1949. I'm so thankful that they got these books published because they would have been lost. And it's, it's our history. And he didn't have to just pass it down early, because this man could write. He could definitely write. Joseph Bundy is a poet, playwright, and community historian based in Roanoke. He says Dickerson's poems were a commentary on black life in Southwest Virginia in the first half of the 20th century, and they reveal his aspirations for his people. In the fields of old Virginia and on Georgia's sunny plain, Africa's able sons, so he's going to get that African reference, black, African, Africa's able sons and daughters sing a hopeful, glad refrain. These lines are from the poem, Black Folks Coming. Instead of saying Negroes coming or colored folks coming, he's saying uh, black folk coming. I think he was, he was really way ahead of his time. He was not letting somebody else name us. He is naming himself. Reverend George Dickerson died in 1953, but the tradition of writing poetry carried on with his son, George Murray Dickerson, Jeanette's uncle. Now the Tazewell, Virginia Rescue Squad proudly presents George Dickerson. His poems were humorous, but also topical. We've got a president today. His name is Richard Nixon. From what I hear and read about, this country needs some fixing. Uncle George recited his poems at high schools, community colleges, at local museums and festivals. He recorded them and printed them up. He would be selling his little booklets and setting up his little tent and reciting poems at the Main Street moments. 
Jeanette says her grandfather and her uncle's poetry spanned momentous points in African-American history. Uh, Papa was right out of slavery, and Uncle George's his stuff started coming out really good after the Civil Rights Movement. So those two points in life, you know. After Uncle George died in 1999, she says the family continued to read his poems, and her grandfather's too, at reunions and church events, but the community as a whole began to lose touch with the poetry. That started to change in 2021. The town of Taswell passed a Juneteenth resolution that called for honoring the contributions that African Americans had made to the town and the region. And now the Dickerson's' poems are read aloud as part of the town's Juneteenth celebrations. Everybody picking on me because I'm colored. They don't think I want to be free because I'm colored. Betty Wallace read this poem by Uncle George at this year's Juneteenth. They won't give me a decent job and claim that I just steal and rob. And they call me boy when my name is Bob because I'm colored. I thought one time I'd try to pass, and then I looked in the looking glass. My hopes went down the drain real fast because I'm colored. Betty is 72 and says this poem, written by Uncle George in 1973, has special meaning for her. I can relate to it so much coming up as a kid, you know, that the things that we couldn't do, not only because I'm colored, but because I'm a dark-skinned colored person. Well, most of my life, people would say, oh, you dark-skinned and you can't do this, or, you know, I did not learn that black was beautiful until black became beautiful. The color of my skin was a very important part of me. She says she's known Uncle George's poetry for years. Now he's getting a new audience as well. Brooke Ann Creasy is 18 and starting to write poetry herself. She says while George Dickerson's poems are sometimes funny, they're also eye-opening. When you hear poems from other perspectives of historical, like, times, like, you know, segregation and stuff, it makes you understand what we don't understand. (laughs) Like, because I'm a white person, I don't get to experience that, and I don't get to experience the discrimination like black people do. And, And, you know, that's why I think a lot of people show arrogance, because they don't like to learn about other people's perspectives, because that's important, is empathy. As for Jeanette Wilson, she says empathy and equality were recurring themes in her grandfather and her uncle's poems. They both had the same idea. The idea to just have equality for rich, poor, black, white, everybody has a part in this world. Portraits of the two George Dickersons are now part of a town mural of 16 noteworthy local African Americans. These two men are standing in the words of one of Uncle George's poems, tall and proud, right next to the Tazewell County Courthouse. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Kitts in Tazewell, Virginia. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To read longer excerpts of poems by members of the Dickerson family, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Young baseball players from around the world visited South Williamsport, Pennsylvania recently for the Little League World Series. But baseball wasn't the only attraction there. WITF's Rachel McDevitt reports. Fans in Lombardy Stadium are often on their feet, cheering on the players during tense games. But for many, the main action of the day is on the hill. Outside the stadium, behind the outfield, visitors can spread out on a steep lawn. It's perfect for watching the game and for sled riding. Hordes of kids are dragging sheets of cardboard up the hill and flying back down on them. 12-year-old Isaac Schoenberger is horsing around with a half dozen of his friends who all came together from the Poconos. It's been pretty fun going down the hill and watching the games. Pretty fun. It's been awesome. Nine-year-old Callan Crampsey interrupts, then shows off the streaks of dirt on his clothes and legs. Oh, you're all dirty. Yeah. How many times have you been down the hill? Maybe like 15 times. Callan says being at the World Series is better than a professional game. It's like funner with the hill big hill to slide down. 
multiple games at once. Fun. I don't think the box can handle more. At the top of the hill, Ian Gallatin is holding onto a box that's painted black with orange flames. Eight little kids pile in. Gallatin works as a runner for ESPN at the series. For the last five years, he's built race cars out of cardboard for kids to ride in. It's funny because at home people are like, oh, you're running camera? I'm like, no, they're like, what do you do there? And I'm like, uh, I'm the professional cardboard sled builder. <laughs> cardboard sledding isn't just for kids. Chris Auker of Lebanon County came to the series for the first time with three of her children. But yes, it's been awesome. I went down the hill on cardboard. Yep. It was fun. Invigorating. <laughs> well, if grown-ups can try too, I find a discarded box and decide to give it a go. All right, here we go. Let's see if I can make it down the hill. <laughs> I can safely report it is as fun as it looks. For all the antics happening on the hill, these kids are still focused on the games. Ten-year-old Grady Bowen from Butler County is rooting for the team from media. And now it's 4-2. Oh, yikes. Do you think uh, Pennsylvania can bring it back? Um, probably. They probably can if um, they hit good, like they did in third and fifth inning. The media team eventually lost to the team from Smithfield, Rhode Island, 7-2. to two. Grady Auker says since he's the same age as the players, he can guess how they feel. I sometimes get a little too into the game even though I'm not playing it, so I get mad and I'm like, oh, you made that play. Then I get super excited sometimes. So. Many young fans on the Hill are already thinking about next season. Eight-year-old Bo Willis of Center County was on an all-star team this year. My favorite position was second base. Okay, cool. Why? Um, because you get a lot of action and you get to cover bases. His dad, Mike Willis, is glad they made the trip to Williamsport. We've always wanted to come down, try it, and now that we did it, I think we're going to be coming back probably every year, make it a tradition. And hopefully someday see his own son on the World Series field. In South Williamsport, I'm Rachel McDevitt. A series of videos offer tips on how to fight climate change at the personal level. Kara Hulsapel has more. 75% of global emissions come from burning fossil fuels. A 2017 report found that 100 companies are the source of over 70% of greenhouse gas emissions since 1988. It's a worldwide problem that will take systemic change to disrupt. But many people are left with a feeling that they could be doing more in their own lives. For the Climate Solutions Reporting Initiative, State Impact Pennsylvania's Rachel McDevitt created a series of short videos to help. The first two-minute video starts at home, and I asked Rachel about the biggest source of energy use and emissions there. In your home. The heating and cooling system is about 50% of your overall energy use. If upgrading it or replacing that system is not an option, there are ways to just use it more efficiently for yourself and cut down on energy use. What's a tip for people to reduce home energy use? I wanted these tips to be accessible. It doesn't help anyone if I go on and say, well, you should really upgrade to a heat pump. Because what if you rent or what if it's just not in your budget? But there are things you can do like sealing air leaks around windows and doors. So that can look like buying those rolls of foam weather stripping, and you can just put those around cracks in your doors and windows so that your ceiling is a little bit more tight. You can also use curtains, cover up the windows during the hottest parts of the day and keep your home dark and cool. You can also open your windows at night to let cooler air in. So that would help in the summertime. Conversely, in the winter, you could open your curtains during the hottest part of the day and let that sun shine in and then sort of insulate your home with the curtains overnight. What are some of the other topics that you're tackling in the series? Things you can do in your yard. Um, those include compost or growing some of your own food or planting native plants, flowers, shrubs, and trees. Those are helpful practices for storing a little bit of carbon in your yard, but also for creating habitat for native biodiversity. And that's another area that's threatened by climate change. So by doing some proactive things in your yard, you can make your space, your green space, more of a haven for insects or birds that might be squeezed. We're going to be talking about driving habits. And so this is another thing. We don't want to issue some kind of mandate. We're not telling you to go out and buy an electric vehicle. But there are some things you can do if you do have to drive in your habits that can improve your fuel economy, save you money on gas, and lower your emissions a little bit. We are also looking at 
shopping habits. And our final piece is going to be an engagement piece. When you see policies that you want to see enacted, it is important to actually sort of step up, get other people involved, and vote your values in those ways. What do you want people to take away from these videos? I hope these videos give people some hope and agency in their lives. Climate change is huge. No one person caused it and no one person can solve it. But if lots of people adopted a lot of little habits and sort of changed their behaviors in little ways, that's going to add up over time. And so I just hope people can find this series useful and walk away with some tips that help them live a little bit more environmentally friendly and also save them some money. That was WITF climate and environmental reporter Rachel McDevitt speaking with the Allegheny Front's Kara Holsoppel. For a while, it looked like black lung disease was on the decline. But as the biggest coal seams were mined out and miners cut more and more coal with rock, a new epidemic emerged. In 2018, NPR and the PBS show Frontline investigated a resurgence of advanced black lung among coal miners across Appalachia. They found that despite mounting evidence and a stream of warnings, federal regulators and mining companies failed to protect workers. The result was that thousands of miners were afflicted with an advanced stage of black lung disease, known as progressive massive fibrosis. There's no cure and no treatment. It's eventually fatal. Now we're going to hear from the miners themselves. This devastating disease has drastically changed their lives, their communities, and their families. They told their stories to NPR's Howard Burkus and Ohio Valley Resource reporter Benny Becker. This story begins in Leatherwood, Kentucky, which is where Howard met miner Greg Kelly. Greg. Hey. I'm Howard Burkus from National Public Radio. Great to meet you. Uh-huh. Do you want to go in and, and talk? <laughs> I'm Greg Kelly. I'm in uh, Leatherwood, Kentucky. Well, I dropped out of high school. Uh, I was working in a grocery store, and I left the grocery store and went to coal mine. I felt like coal mine was my my way of, of living. It was something that was in our blood that we loved to do. Uh, my name is Charles Shortridge, and I live in Meadowview, Virginia, and I've worked 28 years in the coal industry. We love working in the coal mines. It's, that's all we knew was hard work, and that's how we provided for our families. I love coal mining. If I was able today, I'd, I'd be working in the mines. My name is Paul Kinder, and I live in a little town called Honeacre, Virginia. My full career was underground, and I run a roof bolter some and a continuous miner, and I was a foreman, and, uh, you know, I just loved it. I remember when I was a little boy, I'd go, my daddy sometimes would take me to, to the mines where he worked at, and, man, I loved the smell of that. It's just a different smell. I like to go smell one today. It was a good job, and uh, couldn't wait to get to work. Uh, my name is John Gibson. I'm from Appalachia, Virginia, and I'm 56. Harold Dotson, live in Phelps, Kentucky. My name is Jackie Yates. Uh, my name is Noah K. Counts. I live in Clintwood, Virginia. My name is Rodney Sexton. Coal mines was good to me, but God's been even better. That's the only way I can look at it, you know. The one thing I didn't want was back on, but I got it anyway. <laughs> What's it like now with the disease for you? Oh, it's terrible. Bill Cantor, I'm from uh, Pensonport, Kentucky. I mean, it's unexplainable. It's just, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> it's a horrible looking thing. You've got nigels that's on your lungs. It's caused from coal dust, rock dust. You know, it's just like turns your lungs to concrete. You just stop breathing and you just wake up <gasps> and there you are, you're awake. I'm Jack Horn, and I'm from Kemper, Kentucky. The only thing I could liken it to is like if somebody ever holds you in underwater till you thought you were going to drown, and when you come up, you're, you're gasping for air, and that's about what it's like, you know, when you have a lung attack. And I hate it so bad I can't understand it at times, but it's affected my whole being. Tell me your name and uh, where you're from. Uh, Edward Fuller from Steele, Kentucky. Looking back on your mining career, can you think about what it was that happened that might have caused your black lung? Yeah, the coal dust. The dust. I was in the dust all the time. James L. Muncy, M-U-N-C-Y. 
I come out of there and as white as a sheet of ghost. Well, I come out of there and the only thing you see me was mice. You just watch it fall off like ash. It's thick. My name's Roy Mullins, Roy Edward Mullins from Clintwood, Virginia. You can smell it, you can taste it. And when you come outside, you get a drink of water or Coke or whatever. You know, you hark it up and spit it up, you're spitting up gooks of coal dust. And that is embedded into your system. That's just the way it is, really, I think. My name's uh, James Hayes, and I'm from Pike County at Pinson Fort, Kentucky. You know, I mean, it's a dusty job. It's just dusty in the coal mines, regardless. And if you stay long enough, you're more likely going to get black lung. I blame the whole mining industry, you know, the companies and all. I'm Jimmy Wampler. I work for little mines. I work big mines. You got people out there that runs mines that all they want is coal. They don't care about violations. They don't care about nothing else. They just want coal. Coal. Get the coal. Get the coal. They don't care if you live or die. It's the truth of it. name of the game was run coal. <laughs> My name's Danny Thornsbury. And I was a boater man, scoop man, drill man, done it all. And uh, then I ended up being a foreman. There was just a lot of laws that was couldn't really do in, uh, in mine coal profitably. Roy Sparks, I'm from uh, Rock House, Kentucky. Uh, uh, the companies has got so, they're so slick. I mean, you know. Fudging everything. It's a hide and seek for real. They try, try to. Act like they're complying with the laws. Even the inspectors know they're not. And you had to do what they said. If you didn't, it was your hide. You kept your mouth shut. If you didn't, they'd fire you. So I just kept my mouth shut and went on. But I paid for it in the long run. Sure have, and I'm sure every other miner has too. Just almost every guy that I know in our church was a coal miner. My pastor, he had bait long. Bill has black long. Mike has black long. My father-in-law. I got an older brother has got black long. My brothers, my uh, uncles. Uh, my dad's got black long. Just uh, the whole generation, you know, everybody around me, the whole neighborhood. And I think Papa does, and me. Since 2011, I have lost uh, seven friends. And knowing that that's coming to you, it's pretty hard to take. I try to talk my son out of it. I try to get him to go to school. You know, when he got out of high school, I said, now look, you're, uh, you're gonna go to school or you're gonna get you a job. And uh, he said, no, I won't stay here. And he said, I'm gonna go into work in the mines. And so he did. I said, you'll be 30 years old with black lung. You don't want this. No, dad, I wanna work in the mines. I wanna be like you. And guess where he's at? He's working in the mines. The day you pick that dinner bucket up and go in the mines, that's the day you sign your death warrant. That's plain and simple. I go out and I just sit down and have a good cry. You know, that's all you do. Because this black lung is a death sentence. But, you know, that's, we just got to take it one day at a time and hope for the best. Hope, pray that the good Lord just bless us to have another day. The voices of 17 coal miners in Appalachia, all of them with advanced black lung. NPR's Cat Shipnecked produced this story as part of an investigation by NPR and Frontline. It was originally broadcast on NPR's All Things Considered on January 22, 2019. The full documentary, Coal's Deadly Dust, is available on PBS.org. The NPR Frontline investigation helped prompt a new effort to control silica dust in coal mines. Over the summer, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, proposed new rules to limit miners' exposure to silica. Right now, miners, miner advocates, and mining companies are telling MSHA what they think about the proposed rule. Some groups are holding meetings for miners so they can respond. Coming up, we listen in at a Black Lung Town Hall meeting in eastern Kentucky. In 2016, the end of 2016, we released 60 cases of complicated black lung in my clinic. Right now, that same clinic is sitting at 700. 
700 cases of complicated black lung. That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. In July, the Appalachian Citizens Law Center hosted a Black Lung Town Hall in Whitesburg, Kentucky. The nonprofit law firm invited minors and their families to hear from experts about the current state of black lung disease in Appalachia. One of those experts is Kentucky radiologist James Brandon Crum, who first alerted federal researchers to what they later labeled an epidemic of complicated black lung. WMMT in Whitesburg recorded the meeting for its program Mountain Talk. What Dr. Crum has to say is eye-opening, especially if you're not part of the coal mining community. James Brandon Crumb's my name. I grew up about 30 miles from here uh, on Elkhorn Creek between Jenkins and Elkhorn. As Jimmy Moore probably tell you, I probably is not a, a person you would expect to be up here doing this. Uh, if you knew me when I was younger, I was pretty rough and uh, a mean kid, but uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, I'll tell you. So uh, we got a large clinic in Pineville now, United Medical Group, it's a multidisciplinary clinic do a large amount of primary care, but we image a lot of minors uh, from all over the country. We just imaged last year was one of our biggest years, over 1,000 individuals for black lung, which has given us a really nice collection of data that we'll be processing. We've already started here in the last few weeks. Uh, the video faces the black lung too. It's really, really good video to show and demonstrate just how bad this disease is. Uh, The same dust that affected these three boys that we just looked at on this video is some of the same dust that affected you all, the older miners, in the last few years of your life or the last few years that you were mining coal. Uh, I believe this really started in the 90s is when we started having some of this really bad dust. And what I mean by that is quantity and quality is kind of the two major factors that affect the development of black lungs. So how much dust was present and what kind of dust and the size of it. So very small particles and not only coal dust, but rock dust and silica is a major factor in developing this disease. These boys that were on the video, you can see the one up top right there, that's Mackie. Uh, Mackie's three months post-op transplant. He came by my clinic last week. Uh, He's doing really good, Uh, had a tough time. He was at UK for almost two months before he got to come home. Uh, but it's feeling much, much better. If you watch that video and you see how labored he was in breathing, uh, that's not the case anymore. So his, his wife said she had mixed feelings about this uh, transplant because he was talking a lot more than he used to uh, before transplant. But he's doing uh, really well. Ray Anthony in the blue shirt there, he's about 12 to 18 months out transplant, also at UK. Both of them were double lung transplant. He's also doing really well walking several miles a day, hunting and fishing like he said that he used to. Peyton or Mikey, the one on the far left on the bottom, passed away shortly after this video was done. We would like to say that transplant for these two boys would be the cure for them, but uh, that's, that's not the case. Transplant just buys them a little bit of quality time, hopefully, sometimes, and that's not always the case either. So even though I'm very uh, happy for these two, the next two to three years, uh, will probably be a hard road for them to hoe uh, after they get uh, into that four to five year time period. Mean survival uh, is only about three and a half to four years after transplant for these boys when they do get it. Next slide, please. This lecture I put together for uh, the American Lung Association. I did a lecture a few months ago, so it's a big lecture, so I'll go through it pretty quick. But uh, one of the things that you can see, this x-ray on the left, you can see those big kind of wide areas within both lungs. Uh, This is another x-ray a few months to a few years later 
and you can see how much bigger these are uh, on the one on the right. So this demonstrates progression of black lung or worsening of black lung. When we first researched that, we came out in 2016, one of the goals that we had was to prove that black lung still was around, that it existed, right? Because at that time, 14, 15, and 16, the consensus across the United States was that black lung was a dying disease. It was not as prevalent as it used to be. Uh, the larger corporations had taken over. We had new mining equipment that was supposed to be safer. We had stricter regulations that was supposed to be safer for our men. It's completely wrong. Nothing could be different than the truth. So in 2016, we released a report that said there were 60 cases of this disease, complicated black lung, at our clinic in Pikeville that had been imaged at the clinic. Now, I read for all over the country, multiple states for black lung, but everything that I'm going to go over today has been done in my clinic. These men have been set foot in that clinic, and this is one example here. Just a few months ago, we released another paper or publication with the help of NIOSH that we gathered data for several years that demonstrated a significant, over 30% of our miners progressed or got worse months to years after they left the mines. So you can see the guy on the left and you can see him a few years later and you can see what these lungs have done over a few years and there was no significant additional dust exposure in this individual. So we have a significant amount of our miners progressing even after they quit work. And this is something that we've demonstrated in that uh, study and I think that's probably one of the largest uh, studies that has demonstrated that. So that was a, a really nice study to demonstrate that as well. Next slide, please. Uh, this is Mikey's lungs right here. Peyton, the little boy that passed away, only 42 years old. Uh, one of the main goals for the last few years that we've also had is to raise awareness about this disease, right? And especially to our medical community. Not only the medical community, but to our minors, to our general population. Mikey was probably evaluated, I think, three times up in Ashland for lung cancer. So that's what they thought Peyton and Mikey had for probably had six months worth of biopsies, two or three different biopsies uh, before anybody ever had the consensus that this was complicated black lung or major silicosis was his primary uh, diagnosis right here. Unfortunately, next slide please. At that time, there is significant amount of disease. Mackie, the boy at the end of it, the three months post-op, Mackie was treated for pneumonia for about six to eight months. Uh, on antibiotics and steroids, antibiotics and steroids, antibiotics and steroids, and he would get better for about a week or two and then he'd get back. So we raised awareness significantly to our people that treat our minors uh, in Central Appalachia and all over the country, hopefully, uh, to the just how common this disease is now compared to what they thought about it when they said it was completely non-existent, right? So we have significant disease, so much so that I, if there's any pulmonary presentation uh, from a minor, I would put black lung and silicosis at the top of the list by far. It is the most common thing that will affect these guys' lungs over cigarette smoking, over asthma, over cancer, over tuberculosis, histoplasmosis, or sarcoidosis, which is usually what the coal companies try to blame it on, right? Next slide, please. This is your group of uh, significant black lung disease throughout the United States, and you can see we're sitting right in the middle of it, right? That big circle right there, that red circle, that's central Appalachia, that's southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and the western part of Virginia, and that's as bad as it gets in the United States right there. I'll read for these other states. I even read for those counties out there in western Kentucky. Uh, but we have significant worse disease compared to the other parts of the country in the western part of the state. Now, I believe that will change, and these other counties will lend and trend toward to where we're at right now. As mining practices changes in those areas, as they get away from the easier accessible seams and they go into the thinner seams, and have current practices that we have right now in central Appalachia, they'll have more black lung and it'll continue to progress there and get worse and worse. Next slide, please. There's a lot of different manifestations of black lung and then I think this is one of the most confusing things. A lot of people get things on their reports and they get them back and, and things and they, they say it doesn't say black lung, but black lung is a lot of different manifestations of it. We have simple black lung, which is just the small little nodules. 
So if you're a minor or you're a minor's wife and you get a report back and it says there's a one slash one, that's kind of telling you how many nodules was in that lung. That's positive. If you get a two slash two, then there's more nodules. Three slash three, then there's even more nodules. Long as those little nodules are under a centimeter in size, that's really small, that's considered simple black lung. Complicated black lung is once those nodules get over one centimeter in size, that clicks it to complicated. That's an important aspect of it if you're trying to have benefits for a state or federal benefit type situation. Once it becomes complicated on a federal level, it doesn't matter what you're breathing or your blood gases show. So it's an important thing if you're complicated to get it diagnosed as complicated because unfortunately, um, we're looking at right now, and I'll go over this in just a minute, we have a lot of people with complicated black lungs that had normal pulmonary function testing and normal blood gases to some degree. Right? That one in the middle is diffuse dust fibrosis or DDF. Of all these things that we're looking at, in my opinion, this is the biggest killer of them all right here. We don't see as much of it, but when we do see it, it is almost an instant transplant evaluation. I've probably got about 30 to 40 cases of DDF right now that's been in my clinic. This affects our younger ones, but it also affects our middle ones and our older ones equally. There's no age discrimination with DDF. When it does hit, it usually hits and it hits hard and it's even more dangerous than the complicated form of it. COPD is what's been diagnosed or misdiagnosed here for decades about emphysema and chronic bronchitis. A lot of people when they have COPD, the co-companies and the attorneys want to blame it on smoking or they want to blame it on secondhand smoking or they want to blame it on something else. Uh, but just know that dust exposure, whether it's coal dust, rock dust, or both of them together, cause just as much or more COPD than smoking does. So it is definitely a cause of it. We have a lot of COPD including emphysema and chronic bronchitis in our minors that never smoked a cigarette in their life or was never around somebody that smoked a cigarette in their life. So it is a very important manifestation of the disease as well. That one on the bottom, reactive airway disease, that's what I lectured on a few months ago for the Kentucky Asthma and the American Lung Association. This is asthma-like symptoms in our minors. This is why our minors wheeze a lot. We have a significant amount of them that come in with wheezing. This is why when this smoke's been bad for the last three or four months, that's why you can't breathe with that smoke. When you smell those things like perfumes, bleach, cleaners, and stuff like that, when it triggers that shortness of breath, that's what we're dealing with right here is this reactive airway type disease or asthma or occupational induced asthma. Most of our minors does not have any asthma as a child and they developed it after they were in the mines. That is a really consistent history of occupationally induced asthma. Once this dust enters into the lungs and is retained within the lungs, it's there for life. There is, there's no getting rid of it, there's, there's no expelling it, there's nothing like that. Once it's there, it's there for the rest of their life. And unfortunately, we see a lot of individuals where that chronic inflammation, that chronic reaction from this dust particle continues and that's what leads to the progression that we've shown even after they've been taken out of the mines for several years. You can remember this, we kind of call this the Sinister Six, those uh, Spider-Man villains. These are the six manifestations of it right here and usually you'll have multiple manifestations per mine. It won't just hit one way, you'll have multiple manifestations on a single miner. Next slide please. Uh, this is just the definition of simple, and again, these are the small nodules less than a centimeter. Next slide, please. This is your ILO form right here. I put this in here because I think it, it's kind of confusing when you get those things back, and it's confusing to not only the minors and, the, and <coughs> their families, but also to our medical providers. We have a lot of family practitioners there and PAs and nurse practitioners, and when they get this form back, they don't know what it means, right? It's, it's kind of confusing. It's more of on the radiology and the, and the NIOSH and the, and the black lung side of it. There's some parts of this form. Next slide, please. And you can see that up in the top left. That's your nodules right there. So if you get that report back and it says Q and R, all that is is we're describing the size and the shape of those nodules. That's what we're describing to you. And then that perfusion over there on the far right box, that's probably the most confusing thing of all, but you can see 
we've got to mark one of those little blocks in those 12 blocks we got to mark one that'll show where you're at and that's kind of an estimation of how many nodules we're seeing in the affected lung field so if you kind of think of it one of the easiest ways to think is you go from zero to one to two to threes the more nodules we have zeros a little bit one some two's quite a bit three is a whole lot when i say a whole lot i'm talking hundreds of nodules not just a few of them next slide please here's an example of simple black lung you can see all these tiny little white dots all throughout both lung fields and if you were to do a ct on this individual uh, you would see hundreds and hundreds of nodules within the lungs not just a few hundreds and hundreds of nodules on this example of simple black lung even though it's called simple black lung it doesn't mean it's simple for the minor right we have simple black lung that causes significant respiratory symptoms lots of shortness of breath lots of difficulty breathing we have simple black lung patients that go for transplant evaluations we have simple black lung that is on oxygen 24 hours a day we have simple black lungs that are on three breathing medications. So just so it says simple doesn't mean you don't have a lot of symptoms or a lot of problems. Next slide, please. Complicated is when these little nodules get over a centimeter. Next slide. And you can see with these red arrows pointing to these big white areas right here. When those little nodules come together and they form these bigger, bigger nodules or masses, this is what we term complicated black lung. And complicated black lung has got three ways to describe it. We can call it A, B, or C. That's what we describe it, right? A is the smallest form that we can see as complicated. B is over five centimeters, so we get bigger as we go on the alphabet. And C is greater than the entire right upper lung when we evaluate it. So A, B, C, we're going from the smallest to the middle to the worst of the worst when we get to that C opacity. Next, please. This is an example of a CT scan. This is your diffuse dust fibrosis. Instead of having all those little tiny nodules, we still have a ton of them, but then we have what we call fibrotic changes within the interstitium or the framework of the lung. And we have a lot of things which we call honeycombing and the lungs become really, really stiff. So it's difficult to get air in and it's very difficult to get air out. Uh, and CT scan is one of our best modalities to look at this. And I think that's confusing, and I explain this to a lot of minors when they come in also. They're kind of wary of CT scans, but I can tell you that if there is any cases of borderline complicated black lung, I would CT scan it. When you get a chest x-ray with one of these little things on it, and it's just over a centimeter, let's say it's 1.5 centimeter, 1.8 centimeters, your readers for your co-companies are going to call it simple. They're not going to call it complicated. And it is difficult to show a law judge, it is difficult to show somebody in a jury box or something like that if it's on an x-ray. If you CT it, there's no way to hide it. It is a hundred times better than a chest x-ray. I would not be afraid of doing CT scans as far as diagnosing disease, a particularly complicated black lung. With CT scan, we have anywhere from, and I really like the thin, so we need the thin cuts, anywhere from four to 700 images on a CT scan to look at. On a chest x-ray, I got one. So you can see how much better you can see stuff on CT compared to a chest x-ray. Next slide, please. These are examples of COPD and emphysema. These big dark areas within the lung, these real dark areas right here, that's our emphysema. See a lot of emphysema with our black lung patients, whether they smoked or they didn't smoke. If they did smoke, that's not good for their lungs either, right? That adds on to it. That makes it even worse. But even a lot that didn't smoke at all, we see significant emphysema and chronic bronchitis. That's that chronic cough that you have for years and years and years that you just can't get rid of. That's chronic bronchitis. Next slide, please. Reactive airway disease or this occupational type asthma. Difficult for us to see this on x-ray. This is one that kind of gives us more difficulty when we have cases, uh, especially on individuals that have near normal chest x-rays or chest x-rays that are very low on that scale, such like a one slash zero. So very few nodules are identified on chest x-ray. 
but they can have this reactive airway disease, they can have emphysema, they can have chronic bronchitis that can impair pulmonary ability significantly. So even though we see some of these really, really bad chest x-rays that are consistent with really bad simple and really bad complicated and their pulmonary function tests are bad, we can also have minimally uh, aggressive chest x-rays or mild appearing chest x-rays that can yield significant pulmonary impairment. So it's kind of a, you have to be careful with this. We don't see this a lot, but it is one of those more difficult cases to demonstrate this to people. Uh, with this reactive or occupational type airway changes. CT is difficult to see it too. Even with CT, we can't see it that well. Occasionally what we can see is when these kind of have these different colors, we can see these areas of air trapping on CT scan, but it can be even difficult on CT scan to diagnose things like reactive airway disease and this occupational type asthma from it. In summary, uh, we're seeing more and more disease than we've ever seen. In 2016, the end of 2016, we released 60 cases of complicated black lung in my clinic. Right now, that same clinic is sitting at 700. 700 cases of complicated black lung. To put that in perspective, for the entire decade of the 90s, the United States had about 31 to 33 cases of complicated reported for the entire country. We're now at 700 at that clinic at Pikeville. That's been x-rayed at Pikeville. Not that I read other places, that's physically been at that clinic. We have increased transplants. In the last two weeks in my clinic, we've had five guys that's come back for follow-up after transplants. So typically we send our transplants to Vanderbilt or UK, but we are seeing significantly more transplants or more transplant evaluations for our minors than we've ever seen before. We see all forms of it increasing, simple, complicated DDF, reactive airway disease, COPD, all increased in severity. Uh, we see shorter exposures or young minors with increased severity, but we also see increased severity and progression in our older and our retired minors. So it's across the board. There isn't one group that we're particularly worried about. It is affecting everyone that's in with it, right? So just Last year, over a thousand guys, we just started collecting data on this. About 788 of them had really intense evaluations, meaning we did chest x-rays, pulmonary function testing, medical histories, work histories, COVID status, vaccination status. This is the largest data set uh, that we will ever put together. And we're working on that for about the last three weeks. And we want to see how many are complicated and then we're going to start pulling out all of our parameters on this 788 that was complicated. What nodules were there? What's their average perfusion? What's their average age? What's their occupation? How did COVID affect them? How vaccination affect them? Whether they have state benefits, whether they have federal benefits, whether they have both of the benefits. Those are all things extremely important to us. Where those nodules are round or irregular, extremely important when coal companies try to fight this. A lot of the terminology they've been using lately is no rounded classic nodules for black lung. That's what they'll put in the report and they call it negative. Over half of our nodules that we're supposed to diagnose are not round, yet they're calling them negative because they don't have round nodules. That's what we've been seeing the last six months on, on uh, dictations, uh, depositions and things like that. Very, very important uh, on this data set. I'm probably more excited about this last group than, than I've ever been. Next slide, please. So we got a, we got a young minors affected. We got old minors affected. We got everybody in between infect, uh, affected by it. There's nothing improved since 2016. We're significantly worse than that video that we released right there a few years ago. And I see no significant improvement anywhere. There's no significant regulations that's changed on it. There's no significant increase in enforcement on it. And we're running full bore uh, on the coal mines right now. Even though we got less men working in the mines, there'll be a higher percentage contract this disease and it'll be even more severe than it's ever been. All those are negative things, but we do have a few positive things. Uh, transplants are, are doing pretty good. The ones that we're seeing, we've increased awareness significantly 
We have many more miners coming to our truck to get evaluated. So I think the word is out for them. They're very proactive now. Uh, so we are seeing a change, uh, but we are nowhere close uh, to being where we need to be with this disease. I can tell you from a benefits perspective, this state that we're sitting in right here is probably the worst state in the country for miners as far as state compensation, as far as fairness. This state of Kentucky right here has got a two-year limitation. Once you find out that you've got black lung, you got two years to file for it or you're ineligible for it. It's the only state in the United States that a radiologist cannot read your chest X-ray for black lung. Only place in the world that the person that's most trained to read it can't read it. So if I voted for people or I elected people, I would see how they address this state workers' compensation. That was James Brandon Crum. His talk was part of a black lung town hall in Whitesburg, Kentucky. We'll post a link to the entire Mountain Talk episode on our website, wvpublic.org. Earlier, we heard about Tazewell County, Virginia poet Reverend George Mills Dickerson. Let's close today's episode with one of his poems, read by Joseph Bundy. The preacher found the stranger and laid him on a bed and sang the songs of Zion, the Holy Scriptures read. And now the clouds had drifted, the sun was shining bright, the stranger's face was beaming with heaven's peaceful light. God bless you, said the stranger. You've shown a brother's love. Goodbye for now, I'm going to that bright home above. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jeff Ellis, Charlie McCoy, Southern Culture on the Skids, June Carter Cash, and Tim and Dave Bing. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.